Hello, and thank you for tuning in to our podcast from Reedy River Bible Presbyterian Church. This is Pastor Charles Roberts. I'm pastor of Reedy River Church, and I want to share with you a study today from the book of James chapter 1. This is actually a Bible study that I shared with our congregation uh, Sunday night past, and I'm doing it as a podcast here because it's a little easier to do that instead of trying to record it uh, during the actual service. But um, in James chapter 1, verses 5 to 8, we have before us the question, do we have wisdom? As follower of Je- followers of Jesus, <clears throat> we've got to be very careful and very deliberate as to where we seek to receive wisdom from. Now, let me just say right up front that <clears throat> there's a, another issue that's a part of this discussion that I'm not going to get into too much today, and that is the, the differences between wisdom and knowledge. Uh, we today might say the difference between accumulating lots of information versus knowing how to use it and when not to use it and that sort of thing. That's another way of saying the difference between wisdom and knowledge. But I'm just going to stick with the text and what it says here in verse 5 of James chapter 1. Unless otherwise noted, I'm reading from the New King James Version. Uh, James writes, If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So the background of this in the first four verses of this epistle, this letter, which is classified according to biblical scholarship as a general epistle, or a Catholic epistle, in that it's written to all the churches. You know, many of the epistles in the New Testament written by Paul are addressed to specific individuals like Timothy or Titus, or to specific churches like the church at Galatia, the church at Rome, the church at Ephesus. The book of James is a general writing. It applies across the board to all churches and in all times. I mean, there may be some cultural or contextual nuances that we need to be aware of, but for now, we want to understand that in the first four verses, James, the author of the epistle, is instructing Christians on how to deal with the trials of life. Heaven forbid we certainly know something about the trials of life in our day and time, don't we? But then he says in the very next verse, he goes into this issue of the need for wisdom. The way that sentence begins, I think, is maybe a little bit confusing. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask. Um, It's confusing, perhaps, because the fact is, all of us are born into this world lacking wisdom, all kinds of wisdom. And we get into that little discussion about knowledge. I mean, a, a baby is born, and it can immediately have awareness or knowledge of certain things like that hurts that doesn't hurt i can smell that i can taste that that sort of thing but that's not the same thing as wisdom Uh, you know how many of us were born into this world knowing how to brush our teeth how to tie our shoes how to know right from wrong left from right Uh, again keeping with the analogy if somebody teaches you how to brush your teeth well that's the accumulation of knowledge wisdom tells us that we don't take a toothbrush to dinner with us at a nice restaurant and begin brushing our teeth at the table. You know, that's the difference between knowledge and wisdom. But none of us are knowing any of this when we're born. We all had to be taught those things in order uh, to, to have the kind of wisdom and knowledge we need. But what James has in mind here is something much more foundational. He means to say that we must, absolutely imperatively must have godly, biblically-based wisdom. This is the wisdom, for example, that is referred to in the book of Proverbs, chapter 2. Let me read the first 11 verses for you. My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you, so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding, yes, if you cry out for discernment 
and lift up your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, let me just stop here and point out a couple of things. Um, the the the, the Pro book of Proverbs and to some extent the book of Psalms, they use certain words sort of interchangeably. So we're talking here about understanding, wisdom, discernment. Uh, the, these are all sort of the same thing. They're different words for similar concepts. Wisdom, discernment, understanding. But then when we shift into verse 4 and it says, If you seek her as silver, some may wonder about the her preposition. Where is this her coming from? Well, in the Hebrew language, the word for wisdom, chokmah, is in the feminine gender. This might be a, an, an appropriate time also to go down this other little rabbit trail and remind us that such term, the term gender, applies specifically to language. It's been co-opted and corrupted in modern speech to refer to human sexuality, which of course it has nothing to do with that. A, a person is either male or female. Th those are the two sexes. Uh, gender applies to language. In French, Latin, English, Hebrew, you have the feminine case, the, the masculine case, the neuter case. So here in the case of Hebrew, the, the Hebrew word for uh, wisdom is in the feminine case, so that's why the term her is being used here. Picking up at verse 5, Then you will understand the fear of Yahweh, the Lord, and find the knowledge of God. So right there in that one verse, you've got understanding and knowledge. Verse 6, for the, for the Lord, that is Yahweh, gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk uprightly. He guards the paths of justice and preserves the way of his saints. The Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. And then verse 11, discretion will preserve you. Understanding will keep you. So this is what we're talking about here when we are discussing this issue of wisdom and biblically-based wisdom. James lays out the point very clearly. The first step in getting godly wisdom is to realize that we lack it. And then notice next, he says in uh, verse 5 of James 1, we must ask God upon that realization. We're asking him because we realize we don't have that kind of wisdom. So the Bible doesn't teach us to think of ourselves as sort of pre-programmed robots who, need to, who don't need to ask for anything because we've already got the data. We've already got the hard drive loaded, so to speak. And we were created in the image of God specifically so that we could interact with him. Now, look again, again at verse 5. Uh, most English translation, translations of that verse state that God, as it is in the New King James, uh, gives liberally, or in some cases it will say uh, generously for those who ask for that kind of wisdom. But that is not a full, bringing out the full meaning of the Greek text, because it means more literally that God gives without hesitation or without reservation to all who ask him in faith. Now that's quite a promise in this day and time. I mean, where can you go to get a promise, an ironclad, trustworthy promise like that? And also notice too that he gives without bearing a grudge or being critical. You know, it's often difficult to admit that we're wrong about something or to admit that to ourselves or even to someone else that we need or, or we lack something. And maybe one reason for that is that we fear the reaction that our admission of need was going to produce in others. So according to James, if you are willing to admit your lack of wisdom to God, you don't have to worry about the Lord laughing in your face because you admitted your lack of wisdom to him. That may be how some people treat us when we ask for their help. 
But if we come in faith to God asking for his wisdom, well, he gives it and he gives without halting or hesitation. But as with everything else in life and in faith, there are conditions. Look with me at verse 6, James 1 verse 6. He says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. So there are two very important conditions or qualifications here. First of all, we've got to ask in faith. And asking in faith can be taken, I think, in at least two different ways, but they're complementary. One of them means that we would ask as one who is in the faith, or as one who's placed our faith and trust in Christ Jesus. Another way of saying that is that we must be found to be a member of the family in order to speak to the Father. But then it also means that being in that faith, being a part of that family, we ask things, our Heavenly Father, with the right attitude. You know, asking in faith corresponds with his giving us, or giving to us, without hesitation. But the main thing to remember is that what we really and truly believe about God, about Jesus the Christ, about the authority of Holy Scripture over our lives, all of these things are shown in our attitude in turning to the Lord in prayer. If we don't really believe that God controls all things, if you don't really believe that God is sovereign, that Christ is king, and that his law is supreme, well, then you won't be found to be someone who goes to him in prayer, will you? Or to put it another way, if we really don't believe what we should believe about God and the world he created, well, we might turn to God in prayer in the midst, say, of some crisis, but at other times, we live as if God didn't even exist. Either way, that is not an attitude of faith. And so then, that leads to the second qualification. We must ask wisdom from God in prayer without doubting. And as with the other qualification, I believe there are two things the Lord would have us understand from that. So this does not mean, I, I believe, that if we come to God in faith, and we ask him for something that is in accord with his will, that's a vitally important part of asking in faith that's in accord with his will, such as asking for wisdom, that's in accord with his will. But then for that split second, it crosses our mind, we doubt that God will answer our prayer. Well, man, that, that blows the whole thing. That's the end of it. Is that what this means when it says asking without doubting? No, I think the Lord understands our fallenness and our humanness. And I think that in that regard, we should think more of being like the man spoken of in Mark chapter 9, who had a demon-possessed son, and he goes to Jesus and asks him to heal his son. And Jesus says to him, this is Mark 9, 23 to 24, If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. In other words, Lord, I have faith, but help me not to doubt because I am prone to do that. So then, when we pray to the Lord, there should be no hidden place within us that really does not believe either in God or does not uh, admit and acknowledge his authority over all of life. Now, um, the Greek word here translated without doubting, the word doubt, uh, is the Greek word diakrinomenos, and it is a rather challenging word to get the full meaning into the one English word doubt or doubting. Uh, I'm not going to even try to do that here for now for, this, for our purposes. If you have an interest, you can research that on your own. But let's understand this. Asking the Lord for wisdom or for anything in prayer is premised on our asking in faith. 
And that in turn means in order for God to fully answer our prayers, we must understand that he responds to us only when our lives reflect a basic consistency of purpose and intent. In other words, our lives must be those of spiritual integrity, lives that are well on the way to maturing in the faith. James says that a person who tries to follow Jesus without that kind of attitude is going to have a rough ride. Look at verses 7 and 8. He says, For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So for that person whose life is founded on the assumption that if God exists at all, it's not a controlling factor in my life or his life or her life, or in the world for that matter. That person, James says, has no right to expect anything from the Lord at all. And he uses some striking and frankly rather harsh words to describe that kind of person. Let me reread those verses. James 1, 7 to 8 in a different translation. This is from the Bible in basic English. Let it not seem to such a man that he will get anything from the Lord, for there is a division in his mind, and he is uncertain in all his ways. So the Greek word translated there as double-minded in most translations, or as it is in this translation, a division in the mind, that actually is a very unique word in the Greek. And here in James chapter 1, verse 8, that, this is the first place that that term has ever been found in the Greek language. This is a word that, as far as we know, prior to it being written in the epistle of James, no one had ever written that in literary documents before in the Greek language from antiquity. Dr. R.J. Rushduni, in his commentary on the book of James, says this, and I'm quoting him, James describes the double-minded man as radically unstable in all his ways, not merely in his thinking about Jesus Christ, our faith expressed the core of our being so that more than mental indecision or reservation is involved. He says our commitment to the Lord governs every aspect of our being so that our faith is either unreserved or it is dangerous in the instability that it gives us. Are there divisions in our minds regarding the lordship of Jesus over all areas of life? If there is, perhaps that's why some of us have never seen our prayers answered. Perhaps that's why our being a Christian has never really made much difference in our lives. Jesus calls us to forsake everything to follow him. Now, you know, they're Christians. So, oh, yeah, I understand that. Take up our cross and, and follow him daily. Forsake all and follow Jesus. And too often, people have understood that to mean forsaking a few big-ticket sins but all the rest of life is completely unaffected. Let me, let me maybe give you some examples. Bless God, I gave up cigarettes. I gave up drinking liquor and booze. I gave up carousing. I gave up this or that. You know, the big ticket sins. But what about obeying Jesus and forsaking everything to follow him in the area of, let's say, education? Let's say family, marriage, politics. Oh, yes, there's a big one. What about following him in terms of politics? You know, there's actually some Christian ministers who tell their congregations there's no such thing as Christian politics. There's no such thing as Christian education. There's no such thing as Christian this or Christian that. Now, okay, to some extent, I understand what that guy's saying. And I'll be the first to say, and sticking with the issue of politics, there have been those who have claimed that if you're Christian, you're going to vote this way or that way. And most of the time, 
people who say that, they aren't basing that on any biblical standard whatsoever. Let me put it this way, friends. When you go in the voting booth, don't throw the Bible outside before you go in. You better go in, in a manner of speaking, with that Bible. Because there is a type of Christian politics. God has everything to say about everything in creation, including government, including education, including everything, not just having Jesus in your heart. That's another downfall of American evangelical Christianity. It's pietistic to a fault. And therefore, the rest of the world has been left to the devil's people. And now we who believe in the kingdom have to work hard to regain the ground lost by well-meaning but woefully mistaken fellow believers. Or maybe we've understood that call to forsake all to mean, as in the case of, say, the Roman Catholic Church, that means leaving behind the so-called secular world and secular work and the business of being parents and raising children and all the rest of it, and therefore we must become a monk or a priest or a nun. We go off into some non-rational pursuit. No, no, no. The call of Jesus is a call to forsake a fallen worldview. It's not a call to forsake the world that God created. It is a call to change our minds, to be of one mind, to be of a sound mind, a mind and a heart that are sold out to God and his law. Thank you for joining with me today in this Bible study from James chapter 1 on the issue of seeking godly wisdom. Until our next study, I pray that the Lord will bless you and keep you.